Morning living streams. How you guys doing? It, it doesn't feel like morning when it's like 110 degrees, right? I, I think we completely lost morning a couple weeks ago. Like, like four in the morning doesn't feel like morning anymore, does it? Um, if you wake up and the AC is on but you're still sweaty, you know it's summertime in Phoenix. Um, or you need a better air conditioning. Um, can we take just a minute, actually, and, and uh, pray for Pastor Ivan and his church and, and all that? I, I think we did that last service, and um, I think it's meaningful that we just kind of tie ourselves to them in prayer and ask the Lord to move on their behalf. So, uh, Jesus, we thank you so much um, for your church. Lord, we thank you that your church is, um, it's not just one little place right here on Central and Glendale. Lord, your church is all over the world, that, that men and women are following you everywhere. Lord, I thank you so much for Pastor Ivan and the fact that when things got really painful and difficult, Lord, that he stepped up, that his church has stepped up, that they're continuing to be a part of the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray uh, for the believers in the nation of Ukraine. Lord, I pray that you would be with them, Lord, in the midst of, of these circumstances that are painful and difficult and hard, Lord, that they would learn to love their enemies well in a way that, that, it, that has meant nothing to them before, but now is all of a sudden the most challenging thing they could possibly do. Lord, I pray that you would help the church to thrive, to bring safety and comfort, Lord, that you would protect them. Lord, I thank you so much for connecting us and tying us to this one church in the middle of Ukraine, Lord, and I thank you so much for the generosity of your people. Lord, and I thank you for your goodness in the midst of evil and pain and brokenness. Amen. Um, I, I think over the last year or so, uh, getting to kind of uh, be just a tiny little sliver of the church being the church in this regard has been one of the coolest things that I've gotten to do. I'm so grateful for Christina, who's a part of our, our church, and for her dad and what they're doing. Um, and it's just really beautiful. I know that there are so many places that we can look at and should look at and should talk about sometimes when, when the church and when believers, when we kind of fall and we fail and we drop the ball. Uh, but then every once in a while, you see these moments, and, and more than every once in a while, you see these moments where it's like, man, the church is really doing something beautiful. Um, the church is really coming together in unity and pulling together and, and, and stepping into darkness when no one else will. And so I'm just really grateful to be a part of this tiny little corner, this little tiny piece of the body of Christ that's doing that. Um, so thank you guys for being a part of that family. Um, and I'm so grateful again to Christina, who, who just has a heart for her, her dad and for her, for her town where she came from. Um, and it's just beautiful to see what the Lord is doing. I know I got to have a little video chat with Ivan early in the war, and I asked him some questions of what we could be praying for. And that was one of the things that he he said, more than anything, he said, if you could be praying for the believers here, that they would learn to love their enemies, because we're struggling with that, but we know Jesus is calling us to it. Um, so I, I can't imagine what it's like uh, to literally see the ground beneath your feet changed, right? And then also metaphorically to be in a situation like Ukrainian believers are right now, like Ukrainians in general, where everything is different. And I know there are very few of us in the room who have any context to understand what it's like when your nation is invaded to this extent. But at the same time, I think there's something that's really common in the human experience that they're experiencing. And it's this moment when all of a sudden something has changed in a painful and a difficult and a confusing way. And all of a sudden, it's like things are just crashing together and where it used to be easy to see the goodness of God because the, the problems were just hypothetical. Now, all of a sudden, it's painful search for the goodness of God, because you've confronted pain and difficulty and evil and wrong and brokenness and suffering like you have never confronted it before, or rather it has come for you as things just kind of smash into your life. Um, in plate tectonics, 
right? Which you might remember from fourth or fifth grade. Um, I'm curious, by the way, who, who in the room still has their notes from school one, like fourth or fifth grade? I know that there are two types of people in the room, right? They're in the room. There are the people who like categorized all of their notes from elementary school and junior high and high school, and they still have them for some reason, thinking I'm going to need them someday, or that you're just still afraid that your fourth grade teacher is going to be mad at you if you're missing that assignment. And then there's the people who hit the end of the school year, and, and your notes went in the trash, or you had a bonfire, and you didn't care that it was June in Phoenix. You just burned those things, right? Um, I'm, I'm really curious. Come, come let me know later uh, whether or not you have them, you know, filed away or whether you're more of a bonfire type person. Um, but if you remember plate tectonics from elementary school or junior high or whenever it was that you learned it, right? We learned that, that the surface of, of the planet, of Earth, is made up actually of these massive tectonic plates that are larger in most cases than continents. And they slowly drift around over the years on the surface of the planet on probably some cool magma or something crazy underneath, right? And every once in a while, we have these spots where, where these two tectonic plates, or more of them, where they converge, where they smash into each other, and that's called a convergent boundary. And convergent boundaries change the surface of the planet in a significant way. Convergent boundaries actually create the tallest and largest mountain ranges that we have. Mountain ranges like the Andes, or like the Alps, or the Himalayas. And these mountain ranges are places of life-threatening danger. The Alps actually, on average, claim 100 lives every single year. These are places where you can fall off the cliff face. They're places where you can be crushed by a rock or you can be swept away by an avalanche. But they also are places of impenetrable potential safety, where you could hide from your enemies for decades in a mountain range like this. A small people group could be fortified against an entire empire in a mountain range like this. They are places of profound danger or safety all at the same time. And I think that there's something like this that happens that is common in the human experience. I think this is something that Ukrainians are going through right now. I think this is something that you and I have experienced at multiple points throughout our life and will continue to experience moments where there's this crashing together in our lives. We could say that one type of tectonic plate that we might have, obviously metaphorically speaking, would be you know, the tectonic plate of our most challenging and important intellectual questions. A good example of this is what is called the, the problem of evil, and that's kind of a cool philosophical or theological way of basically saying, how is it that God is good if he's all-powerful, but there's still pain and suffering and evil in the world? And on its own, that is a significant, monumental, tectonic plate to look at, to consider it, to, to chat about, to come up with kind of, you know, um, thought experiments as we chew on that. But on its own, it's not particularly dangerous, is it? When it just sits there and it's just a hypothetical. When it becomes dangerous is when it crashes into another tectonic plate of our most challenging emotional questions. Right, because it's one thing to consider the problem of evil, it's another thing to be in a country and be invaded by the people that were your neighbors and your friends not too long ago. It's one thing to consider the problem of evil, it's another thing to turn on the news and watch COVID wreaking havoc over the world or watch children dying. It's one thing to consider the problem of evil, it's another thing to watch your family slowly falling apart or your friend battling with cancer and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and you know that God can do miracles and you continue to pray and then your family splits in half and your friend passes away. It's one thing to consider the problem of evil. It's another thing to witness or fall victim to unspeakable evil. And where these 
tectonic plates smash into each other. We have a convergent boundary. We have a place where the earth beneath our feet is forever changed. We have a place that is profoundly dangerous. We can fall off the cliff face away from God and be smashed on the rocks beneath, or we can actually dig into the goodness of God. In a place where it's difficult to see the goodness of God, we can find it and we can entrench ourselves in the stone that is his goodness, in the rock and the fortress that is his goodness. And we can create for ourselves a fortification that keeps us safe from the enemy for hundreds or thousands of years, probably for eternity, definitely for eternity. These places, these areas where our emotional, our, our intellectual and our emotional challenge, where they smash together, they create either for us a castle or a casket. And it has everything to do with how we navigate these things. And this is what the book of Job is inviting us into. Also, I just love that, you know, they set all this up just for that one analogy of mine. You know, we got some mountain ranges going on. Thank you, VBS team, for making sure that I was set up. I appreciate that, yeah. Also, they look awesome. I'm going to take these cacti home. Did you make them? They look great. I'm taking them home. Oh, he's taking them home. Okay, well, good plan. For the living room, right? Yeah. This is a great living room decor. Um, but this is what the book of Job is inviting us into. It's inviting us to wrestle. I love that Ryan said that last week. If we could just kind of summarize the book of Job in one word, it would be wrestling. It's inviting us to wrestle with God. And this is exactly what we see in the life of Job. And there are a lot of valuable, meaningful nuggets of gold and of wisdom to be found throughout the book of Job. But one of the ones that I would say is perhaps the most significant is this. As we watch Job and how he engages with, with a convergent boundary, with the smashing together of those intellectual and emotional questions in his heart, he stays rooted in a heart of worship. And he brings sincerity and transparency and honesty before the Lord. He puts everything on the floor before the Lord. He says to God, God, it seems to me that you're wrong here. And yet I know that the only reason that I can even come before you and bring something of an accusation is because you are in fact so good that you would wash me and you would clean me and that you would be my advocate. And if we can learn like Job to worship the Lord and at the same time to bring our honest feelings before him, to pour them out and to engage in relationship with him instead of disengage in relationship with him. I think we'll gain something really valuable. Imagine um, that you and I were friends. We are friends. Um, imagine that you came to me and said hi, and I said hi. And you said, what, what's wrong? And I said, absolutely nothing. Why would you, why would you ask me what's wrong? In that, and secretly in my heart, I'm angry with you. Why? Because I, I, I hated something you did yesterday or earlier this morning. Would I be honoring our relationship if I chose not to be honest with you and not to engage with you? Absolutely not. It would be more honoring to our relationship if I would yell at you and say, you're, you're a stupid idiot and I hate you and you did this and it was so frustrating. Now, there's a third option where I could actually just tell you in a healthy, honest way. But it would be more honoring to our relationship if I would be honest with you and pour my feelings out on the floor and engage with our relationship. It is dishonoring our relationship if I disengage and say there's nothing wrong. Why would we think it's any different with God? And the silly thing is God actually already knows what's in our heart, so why would we hide it from him? Better to be honest and to say, God, I, I'm actually angry and I'm hurting and I'm frustrated and I'm confused and I wanna root myself in the reality of your goodness. And so I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna worship you, but I'm also gonna come to you and I'm gonna say, God, I don't know. And this is what Job does. 
Um, uh, Ryan and myself and the rest of the teaching team, we've been talking for a long time, like Ryan shared with you last week, about the book of Job because it's complex and it's deep and it's heavy and it's weighty. And if you're not ready for that, I'm sorry, this is just going to be a heavy message a little bit, but I think there's some lightness and some sweetness in the Lord in it to be found. Uh, But as we were talking about that, we said, well, let's kind of try to do like a one-two intro a little bit uh, because there's so much. We could spend a whole month on intro in Job. And so I have a couple of little nuggets that I think will be helpful for you that we'll get to in a minute as you read the book of Job on how to read the book of Job. But also I want to make sure that the story of Job is clear. So I'm going to recap that and catch us up to where we're going to pick up in chapter eight. Right. So as Ryan shared with us last week, in the book of Job, we're told about this character. His name is, unsurprisingly, Job. Um, And Job is, is a righteous man. He's a good man. He fears the Lord. He has a relationship with God. He's also a wealthy man. And then in Act 1, Scene 1, we have Hashatan, the adversary, Satan, come before the Lord and say to God, basically, hey, I think that Job only loves you because you've blessed him so much. Take away his blessing. If you would let me take away his blessing, then I don't think he'll love you anymore. And God, you would hope, would say, absolutely not. Satan, you have no dominion over Job. He's my son. I love him. I protect him. You have no right. Get out of here, Satan. That's what you would hope God would say. And that would be great. That would be like the moment in the beginning of the movie when we're watching it and you're like, don't go into the closet. And we all were like, don't, just don't, just don't, just don't do it, you know? And if that's what happened in the book of Job, it would be like the protagonist didn't go in the closet. And then it's a happy story. And then the bad guy never kidnaps him or whatever, right? But that's not what happens. Problematically so, God, instead, he says, Go for it. And so in a moment, Job loses everything, all of his possessions, all of his wealth, even his 10 children, they pass away in a single accident. And Job, we're told, falls on the floor and he cries out before the Lord on his knees and he says, naked I have come into this world, naked I will leave it still, I will bless the name of the Lord. And so act one, scene two, Hashatan is back there in front of the Lord and, and, and the adversary and Satan says, you know, he, he didn't curse you, he didn't turn away from you because you wouldn't let me strike Job. Let me take Job's health away and he'll turn on you and he'll curse you. And God, again, problematically so, says, go for it. And I hate that. Right? It is so frustrating and so painful that the Lord does that, but I love it at the same time. Why? Because this is reality. Right? Because you and I, if our brains are on, at some point in time, we're going to realize, man, somehow God seems to be involved in the pain. And I I know that sometimes Christians might have the reputation for avoiding these questions and these thoughts and sticking our heads and our hearts in the sand. But that's not what the Bible is calling us to. The Bible is calling us to wrestle with these. The Bible is putting it right there at the beginning, at the introduction of the book of Job. Hey, look at this. The circumstantial evidence against God is problematic. And I love that God is not afraid of the circumstantial evidence against him. Why? I think it's because he knows that the truth is that he's good. And if we could just get a glimpse of of his face, of his glory, of his beauty, we would know that he is good. How many movies rise and fall on this premise, right? Circumstantial evidence that makes the protagonist look like they murdered the person or kidnapped the person or stole the money or did whatever. And and all of the evidence is pointing to the fact that they're guilty. And yet the circumstantial evidence is misleading. And when you understand a certain element, the rest of it clicks into place and you realize, oh no, they were innocent the whole time. 
In fact, they were good the whole time. This is exactly what is taking place in our lives, not just in the book of Job, but in your life and in my life. When it seems like God has done wrong, when it seems like God has maybe been complicit with evil, yet there's something we're missing. The circumstantial evidence, God is not afraid of it because he is in fact good. And so then Job, he gets sick. He has these boils all over his body and he sits in the ashes and he whines and he complains and he has every reason to do it. And he's scraping at his wounds at these boils with these broken shards of pottery. And his wife comes to him and she says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, how can I accept from God the good and not the bad? And later on, we're told that he would even say, though he slay me, yet I will trust in the Lord. And then this dialogue begins, which is the bulk of Job. It's this poetic conversation that takes place between Job and his friends. And sometimes Job is just completely ignoring his friends who are giving him horrible advice and missing the mark every time. And he just speaks to God and he says, God, would you, God, would you show up? Would you show me your goodness? Because it seems like you're not good here. And God will show up, but not until the very end after chapter after chapter after chapter of Job crying out. And it's this wrestling that we're being invited into. Um, before we get to chapter eight, I want to give you again, like I said, those, these two little nuggets I think that are helpful when reading the book of Job, just on a practical basis. I think a lot of us, we read the book of Job and we get confused by the book of Job or we get bored by it. And we're like, I don't understand. This is a long, confusing book. It takes me like forever to get through. But imagine this. Imagine I told you, hey, this over here, this is my favorite movie. And I want you to watch this movie and tell, tell me what you think about it. And you choose to say, okay, great. And then you watch five minutes of it. You pause it. You go about your day. You come back the next day. You unpause it. You watch another five minutes. And then you pause it again. And you continue to do this for about a month and a half to two months. Do you think you would enjoy my favorite movie if you watched it five minutes at a time? Absolutely not. Would it be the fault of my favorite movie or would it be your fault for watching the movie in a weird way? No, who does that? Nobody watches a movie five minutes at a time. You're gonna ruin the movie. You're gonna hate it. Why? Because you're, you watched it weird. You're gonna be so lost and so maybe you'll have some loose understanding of the plot. You'll probably remember a couple of punchy lines here or there, but at the end of the day, you're gonna say, Alec, you have a bad taste in movie. I'm gonna say, no, you have a bad taste in how to watch a movie. Why would we think that reading the book of Job one chapter at a time over the course of two months is any different? It's a story. And so if we read it, one chapter at a time over two months, we're gonna get lost, we're gonna get confused, we're gonna actually probably be at risk for taking the opposite point that the author is trying to give us and coming out of the book of Job with, with the very wrong points. What I would encourage you to do is to read the book of Job actually at least one or two times in your life, certainly over this summer as we're going through it. Read the book of Job in as few sittings as possible. Um, I'm a very slow reader. Uh, which is weird because I read a lot of books, but I cheat. I read audiobooks. Um, there's, there's my little secret there. Um, I'm a very slow reader. It takes me about an hour and a half to read through the book of Job. I bet you can read through it a lot quicker than that. I would encourage you to read through it in two or three or four, no more than five sittings if you can. Uh, a tool that we actually have uh, out in the courtyard to make that easier is what's called a reader's edition of the Bible. All those books that we started having in the courtyard, we're selling them at cost. We're not trying to make any money at all. We're actually just trying to put some resources with that we think will help your spiritual formation, your growth, and your development. A reader's edition of the Bible is this. It's a normal translation. It's the ESV out there. Uh, and it's just formatted more like a novel than a dictionary to make it a more enjoyable process as you read the stories in the Bible. 
Um, I've actually used one uh, for quite some time in my daily quiet times, and it's changed things in a really significant way. So read the book of Job in as few sittings as possible. The next little nugget on how to read the book of Job, Brian hit on a little bit last week. Job is a book of poetry. So recognize that it's poetic. They're not being short and concise and to the point they're being painterly and fluffy and using all these adjectives. And if you're confused what they're talking about, here's what I would encourage you to do. Read ahead a few verses or behind a few verses and find what it is that the person speaking is describing and keep that in mind. Maybe even jot those things down to make a little tiny, you know, kind of broken up summary of what their points and what they're saying. If you do that, it's gonna make a lot more sense to you. Um, So with that, let's dive into Job chapter eight. Uh, So this is what it says. So then Bildad, so again, remember, uh, Job has gone through all this tragedy. He started kind of whining and complaining and being frustrated to the Lord. Now, I I, I don't say whining in a derogatory way. Like, he's got every reason to whine. Um, And so his friend Bildad, he's going to say this. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned, Job against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. (coughs) Excuse me. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For you were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. They will, not, uh, will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? So here's what Bildad is saying. He's saying, hey, Job, uh, why don't you go and talk to the old people because they know what's going on. They know what you and I don't know, although secretly I know because I'm smarter than you, Job. Go talk to them and see what advice that they would give. And so then he he says this. He says, um, can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Yep, old people talking about papyrus. That's what they always do. Um, Can reeds thrive without water while still growing and uncut? They wither more quickly than the grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. Oh, okay. So they were talking about the godless. That's what they were describing. He'll continue, uh, you know, the elderly people and their advice will continue uh, to talk about the godless. He says what they, the godless, trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They, the godless, lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. They, the godless, are like a well-watered plant in sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks, and it looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life will wither away, and from the soil other plants will grow. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. So what is Bildad saying? First of all, I just have a completely non sequitur joke here, Um, and I learned it from David Stockton, so you can blame him for this. Who's the shortest person in the Bible? It's not Nehemiah, if you were wondering. It's, it's, uh, it's, It's Bildad the shoe height. I'm sorry. Again, you can blame David. I heard him say that when I was in high school, and it's still like burned in my brain as the worst Bible joke I've ever heard. Um, so what is Bildad saying? Bildad is saying this. He's saying, Job, your children died because God was punishing them for their sin. You are suffering because God is punishing you for your sin. He says, Job, God punishes the wicked and he rewards the righteous. And so if you will just turn around and stop being wicked and start being righteous, then God will bless you and things will be great again. And I want to make this very clear. 
each one of Job's friends, they are missing something vital in the worldview that they are articulating. What Bildad is saying here is true, but it's only half true. It's only a half theology, and half theology is bad theology. Just to be really clear, he's wrong. It's true that God punishes sin. It's true that God blesses the righteous, but it's not true that Job's children died because of their sin. It's not true that Job is suffering because of his sin. We know this because we've been listening to the narration and the prologue. Job knows this because he's been living his life. Bildad doesn't know this because his worldview is wrong. It's half true. It's half theology, and half theology is bad theology. Just like a broken clock that can be right, you know, twice a day. Well, at least the old analog ones that nobody uses are. The new nowadays, they just don't say anything if they're broken. But an old one of the ones that do this, you know, when they're right, it's because you know, it just happens to be 2.15, the time that it's stuck on forever. And half theology sometimes is right, but most of the time it's off. And sometimes it's so off that it can be dangerous, even literally deadly. A few years ago, I was uh, in my early 20s and I was sitting in on our, on our staff meetings. I think before, may have been before I was on staff, for some reason, Mark Buckley let me as like a 20-year-old just come and sit and just listen in on the staff meetings and see what was going on and try to learn a little bit. Um, and I remember this one particular Tuesday morning, this young couple that I'd never met before, they came to our staff meeting and they shared some of their story and, and they said, the Lord has been really doing a lot of great healing for them here at Living Streams and in this community from some serious wounds. And then they proceeded to tell us one of the most tragic stories I think I've ever heard. They said, um, a few years ago, we were at this other church um, and uh, we weren't married yet, but we had been sleeping together. And as a result, we got pregnant. And then we thought, you know, we were planning on getting married, so let's kind of move it up and let's get married. And so they got married, and then a little while later, their child was born, and then a little while later, that child died. And they were grieving, and they were experiencing one of these convergent boundaries, right? A smashing together of their challenging intellectual questions that were no longer hypothetical. The loss of a child, it was real. They were going through it and they were grieving, and they were hurting, and they were in pain. And so they went to the leaders of their church, and they said, we're hurting. Do you have any comfort? Do you have any wisdom? Do you have any counsel for us? And what the leaders of their church said was this. They said, your child died because God is punishing you for your sexual immorality. And I felt exactly what you're feeling right now. My heart sunk, my gut twisted. I knew that this was wrong, what they had heard. And as you would imagine, this young couple, they fell off the cliff face. They fell away from the Lord. I think it's really important to say at this point in time that bad theology, more often than not, the danger of bad theology is not that God will reject you for your bad theology. The danger of bad theology is usually that you will ultimately reject God because you've put him in the wrong box how challenging it must have been for that young couple when they were wondering, is this true? Is God punishing us? Has God taken the life of our child for something that we did? And I wanna be very clear, those church leaders were wrong. They were missing something. I know that there's a story of King David in a similar circumstance, but I still think that they were absolutely missing something. Bildad and these church leaders, they had a reductionistic worldview. They had an overly simplified worldview that did not encapsulate the entirety of reality. 
In her book, uh, Nancy Piercy, uh, she talks about, in her book, Finding Truth, she talks about this idea uh, for the, this, this process for kind of trying to check the veracity, the, the, the reality, the truthfulness of a worldview. And she says, any worldview that is based on an idol, and what she means by an idol is one thing in creation or even a handful of things in creation. Any worldview that is based on an idol, something that you've placed at the foundation of your worldview where God belongs, any worldview based on that will ultimately build a box and something will stick outside of that box. And so what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to shove it back into that box to make your worldview work. And this is exactly what Bildad did. Bildad had a worldview that idolized justice, ironically. Justice is a good thing, it's a true thing, it's a facet of God, it works in creation. God has built justice into the fabric of everything, and yet it's not the entirety of the person of God. And so Bildad said, well, justice is how everything works. And so when your children's death doesn't fit in the box, when your suffering doesn't fit in the box, Job, I'm gonna shove it into the box and say, no, that this is because you're suffering because God is punishing you. These church leaders, when they saw that this tragedy that this couple was going through, they said, well, you know, our worldview is based off of an idea of justice. And so if I don't see this fitting in the way justice is understood to me, then I'm gonna shove it back in and say, it must be God punishing you because God is just. What they were missing is a worldview based not on an idol, not based on a single thing like justice, but based on an eternal, transcendent, personal, and loving God. They didn't build their house on the rock. They built it on a single pebble. And when you build your worldview on Jesus, you see that there's more to the story than Bildad defined. There's more to the story than these church leaders defined because it wasn't just punishment at play. When you build your worldview on Jesus, you realize that Jesus actually died to take our punishment for our sins so we wouldn't have to. So it's hard to say exactly why these people, why Job and why this couple, why they went through what they did, but I can tell you it wasn't because of punishment, because they're covered in the blood of Jesus. And so let's build our worldview on Jesus on something bigger, and let's talk about a little bit more of the pieces of the puzzle. See, there's one piece of the puzzle that Bildad and these church leaders had, right, which is that sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. I talked about this actually the last time I preached. That is a cause of suffering. I gave the example of if I walked up to a big muscly guy and I punch him in the face and he punches me back, well, now I've got a black eye and I'm suffering. Why? Because of my sin, because I did something wrong. But say I do nothing to that guy. He just walks up to me and he thinks I'm ugly and he punches me in the face. Well, I, I, I now have a black eye and I'm suffering because of his faith, because of his, his sin. In fact, I'm doing everything I can to cover up my ugly face so people don't get mad about it. I, I love that you guys laugh at that. I did that like a few weeks ago and I just, I'm gonna just pull that joke out every single time I preach now, sorry. Uh, and so sometimes we suffer for other people's sin, but we also suffer for the original sin, for Adam and Eve's sin, right? because the world is broken. When someone, when someone is elderly and they pass away peacefully in their sleep and experience death, that's not because of sin, not because of our sin or someone else's sin, that's because the world is broken. Hurricanes and cancer are because the world is broken and we suffer for it. Sometimes we suffer and it has nothing to do with sin at all. If you go to the gym and you work out and your muscles are sore the next day, nobody sinned. You're actually just growing and getting stronger. Those are four categories, three of which Bildad and those church leaders were missing and they're important. But then there's this fifth category that they were missing too. This fifth category sometimes exists on, alone, on, on its own, separate and alone, and sometimes it actually permeates all four of the other categories. It is when we suffer for the glory of God 
and ultimately to draw closer to him in intimacy. Sometimes that is the only reason suffering is taking place. But sometimes that seeps into the other reasons. Sometimes regardless of the cause of pain and suffering, God is able to work out something that would bring him glory and would draw us closer. The ultimate example of that is Jesus. There are a million reasons we could look at and point to as the cause of Jesus' suffering, but ultimately what permeates any cause of that suffering was so that you and I could get closer to him. So you and I could see the glory of God and his goodness and his mercy. And it's only when we build our worldview on a transcendent, on an eternal, on a personal, on a loving God that we can build an understanding of the complexity of reality. And sometimes for a moment, we don't understand the complexity, but we're able to see the answer. And I'm not saying it's not worth using our brains and thinking things out and trying to figure out how it is that God is good in the circumstances. But I am saying that if you're struggling with that, what you do is you go and you just say, can I look at Jesus? Can I experience his goodness? Can I witness him? Can I look into his eyes and see his glory? When I was in eighth grade, um, I went through one of the first uh, convergent boundaries of my life. I was 13 years old. I hadn't dealt with a lot of significant pain and turmoil. Um, and my sister, who I was very close with, she tried and almost succeeded in taking her own life. And it felt like, like all of a sudden something was just smashing into my heart. And I remember the day that I found that out, I, I went and I was just praying and, and, and one of my older friends said, hey, why don't you come with me to Johnny Stockton's house, David's uh, brother? Because every Sunday night back then when David was a youth pastor, we would have these kind of unplugged worship nights and do some communion over at Johnny's house. And so I went to John's house and, and I remember just worshiping the Lord. And kind of towards the end of the evening, I found myself in the kitchen with some communion elements on my knees, crying out and weeping before the Lord and hurting and not understanding how God was good in this circumstance. And, and what I felt was so powerful. I just felt it was like Jesus kneeled down next to me and put his arm around my back and just wept with me. And right then in that moment, I, I don't think I could have articulated to you how it was that God was good in those circumstances. And yet I saw it. I didn't have an explanation, but I had the answer, which is that God was good, that he was there with me, that he was weeping, because I saw the goodness of God just like Job. And I don't know what convergent boundary you might be going through in your life, or what convergent boundary, what crashing together of those intellectual and emotional questions that you dealt with months or years ago, but ended up just sweeping it under the rug. But here, here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're having a hard time understanding how these circumstances point to God being good, get on your knees before the Lord and cry out like Job in worship. Say, naked have I come into this world, naked will I leave, still I will bless the name of the Lord. Say, I will accept the good and the bad if it comes from the Lord. Say, though he slay me yet, I will trust in the Lord. And from a place of worship, dump all of your feelings and all of your thoughts and all of your questions and all of your anger and all of your doubts and all of your frustrations. Dump it all out before the Lord and say, God, this is yours. I want to engage in relationship with you even though I'm hurting. 
And even if I can't understand right now how it is that you're good, could I just see your goodness? Could I just look for a moment into your eyes? Um, Sharon Welch, um, one of our pastors here, has been going through some really painful uh, stuff lately, particularly medical stuff. Um, and she sent me this after the last service. She said, uh, she said, all suffering, she said it was so good, all suffering can be used to, the glor- to glorify God and to come closer to him. And you know what, Alec, in that suffering, there's sweetness, a sweetness that only comes from our precious Lord. As we draw near to him, he draws near to us, sweetness. She's dealing with it right now. And this is a woman who is strong in the Lord. She's made a castle and not a casket out of these mountain ranges, out of this terrain. This isn't her first rodeo with suffering. And she's learned that I can entrench myself in the goodness of God and what I find in the midst of the pain is sweetness. Because he is so very good. The last person I want to speak to today is... um, is the person who, who feels like maybe you've heard the accusations of Bildad or of those church leaders. Maybe it was actually a person who spoke those over to you. Maybe it's your own heart and your own questions and your own doubts, and you're wondering, is God punishing me? Here's what I want to really encourage you to do. Get before the Lord and worship him. Again, like Job, cry out. Pour all of your heart on the Lord. Get on your knees before the Lord. And if you've never done it before, repent for whatever it is you're, you're nervous that he might be punishing for you for. Repent before the Lord. And then I want you to do this. I want you to ask the Lord, would you show me how you see me covered in your blood, washed and cleaned and made whole? And would you tell me something about the day that you were punished for my sin, for this specific sin, so that I wouldn't have to be? And would you show me a little bit of your goodness? Uh, Let's take just a, a moment really quickly here and let's just wait on the Lord just to see if he has something to say. like someone right now is actually literally just asking the Lord, are you even good? And I feel like his simple answer to you is yes. And then you're asking, do you even love me? And his simple answer to you is absolutely. So Jesus, we pray that we would receive your words over us. Lord, we thank you that you gave us a mind to engage these challenging questions, and may we not stick our minds or our hearts in the sand and avoid them, but we also thank you that you have given us eyes to see your glory and your goodness, to trust that you're good when we don't yet understand it. May we worship you. May we find the sweetness. May we we build castles out of these places where our most challenging intellectual and emotional questions, where they crash into our very hearts. Jesus, I want to trust you. 
want to rest in your goodness when everything is falling apart. I know that when I'm angry about how things are turning out, that you are still good. And that you're working this out. And so I love you and I trust you and I surrender to you, Lord Jesus. You are beautiful and you are good. Amen.